Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The Sultana was a beautiful steamboat, a hulking vessel of wood and paddle wheels. She was only about two years old, roughly the size of a football field, and featured twin smokestacks, from which hung a pair of elk antlers. They were given to her as a trophy for being the fastest boat around. She was also a workhorse. The Sultana was originally built to ferry cotton, but when the Civil War broke out, she got a new assignment. She became tasked with ferrying Union troops and supplies up and down the Mississippi River. In time, she'd begin carrying that cotton again, alongside passengers from New Orleans to her home in St. Louis, Missouri. Her captain, a man by the name of James Mason, was proud of her contributions to the war efforts and how well she continued to provide an integral lifeline to communities up and down the river. And when he got word of Abraham Lincoln's death, he decided that he was going to once again put her speed to the test He wanted to be the first boat in New Orleans to break the news of the president's assassination. So off they went, a captain and his ship sailing downstream, bearing bad news. A quick stop in Vicksburg, Mississippi was meant to address the Sultana's boiler issues, which seemed to be exacerbated under the quick pace of her run. While he was there, Captain Mason received a lucrative offer. The Union Army wanted him and his ship to ferry home their prisoners of war, recently released from Confederate hands, and they would pay him well. He opted into the deal, and decided he'd better get moving. A decision was made to simply patch the boilers, rather than spending time in port executing more meticulous and costly repairs. The Sultana was steadfast, what hurt could come from one quick run. So Captain Mason loaded the Sultana, stuffing her holds and decks with about 2,200 men, more than 1,600 over her capacity. Each man had a price on his head, and the money math made it hard for him to see that he had made a very fatal miscalculation. 
with his newly sprung charges on board, men who had seen horrors the young country had never before witnessed and lived through it all, the Sultana set off northbound into the cold spring thaw. The ship creaked, the wheels churned laboriously, the boiler strained, and the men slept. And at just about two in the morning, she gave way. Unable to take what was being asked of her, the Sultana's first boiler gave out and exploded. This set off a chain reaction and caused her other two boilers to go off like bombs, incinerating the sleeping people in her hold. Her shrapnel flew in all directions, and boiling water from her belly effectively cooked men to death. Those who managed to survive began to swim. They clawed their way through the cold, chopping waves, aiming for shore. They pulled themselves up on the river's banks, having landed in the former Confederate territory of Arkansas. For men still wearing their Union uniforms, this could have been a second fright. But instead, they found something entirely different, a sense of unity and humanity they hadn't seen in all their time away for war. The locals headed for the explosion and ran into the water, and there they began to fish out the Union soldiers, bringing them to safety. Some quickly built a raft to begin rescuing men stranded in the remainder of the Sultana's slowly sinking wreckage. They brought them into their homes and tended to the wounded and dying. All in all, historians believe almost 1,200 of the 2,200 men aboard the ship died. To this day, it remains among the deadliest maritime disasters in United States history. These soldiers had come so far and were so close to home. After surviving the war, what should have been a celebration, a homecoming, ended not in another chance at life, but in their funerals. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. From the Lenape to the Dutch to the British and then to the Americans, the spit of land, now known as New York City, had long been a hub of trade, culture, and immigration. Indigenous peoples and colonists alike depended on the area's waterways for fishing, trade, and communication. Traditional birch bark canoes and other smaller vessels were long popular for navigating New York's lakes and rivers, while larger boats were necessary to venture out into the wide-open Atlantic. But as the country was colonized, the ports became even more central to commerce and immigration. By the turn of the 19th century, hundreds of boats and thousands of people docked in New York City daily, many of them chasing after stories about a certain American dream. For the hopeful folks who survived the long trip from Europe, many were left figuring out their next steps. Many came young and unattached, hopeful that someone they knew in this new land might make good on the promise of helping them get started. Some had no one. Others arrived to well-established communities, waiting for them with open arms. And if they were lucky enough, these sea-weary passengers didn't have to go far from the boat dock. In the case of those immigrating from Germany, many found themselves a new home in Klein Deutschland, or Little Germany, in the area that's now known as the Lower East Side. By 1855, New York City had the third largest German population in any city worldwide, surpassed only by Berlin and Vienna. Their little corner of the city burst with the vibrancy of the old country, 
the scents of home cooking and comforting dialects mingling with the unfamiliar sounds and smells of Manhattan's Southern Point. It's here that they worked to establish a new rhythm of a new life, borrowing enough of the old ways to feel brave enough to be in this unfamiliar place. One of the central ways folks found respite from the streets, which were decidedly not paved with gold as promised, was to join church communities. St. Mark's Evangelical Lutheran Church, in the heart of Kleindeutschland, was one of these places. For decades, the church had been the center of the Little Germany community. Beyond providing prayers and absolution for its parishioners, it also provided camaraderie and play. And it was on June 15th of 1904 that the church had made plans for a long summer day's outing. That morning, a crowd of mostly women and children were seen off by their husbands, who were largely on their way to work. The General Slocum, a paddle steamer, sat docked and ready to ferry folks away for a day of leisure. It was a treat to have an entire day to themselves. And since it was just about the beginning of summer, the days were still growing just a bit longer, if only for a little while. The school year had come to an end. It was a hopeful season. That sunny morning, over 1,300 members of the St. Mark's community showed up. The children were dressed in their finest clothes, shouting and giggling as their mothers corralled them on the docks. Music from a German band added to the sense of celebration, while tiny German flags waved in small hands. As more families gathered, lugging their baskets of meats and sweets, it became clear that this was going to be a church picnic for the ages. They looked upon their boat, and she was a beautiful thing. The Slocum, to her credit, was said to be the largest and most splendid excursion steamer in the whole state. She was a wooden triple-decker side paddler, with a main cabin filled with glossed wood and red velvet trimmings. Her name was emblazoned in gold over her white paint. There was an immense sense of anticipation in getting a chance to take to the waters on one of these famous pleasure crafts. Just before the clock struck 10 a.m., the Slocum rang her bell and began to pull away from the dock. They were going north, up the East River, and heading for a picnic ground on the north shore of Long Island. On a good day, which this one very much was, the trip should take no longer than two hours. The passengers leaned over the railings, waving to those who remained on shore. They laughed as their loved ones and dock workers alike became specks in the distance, anticipating what lay ahead for them upriver. The Slocum was named after Henry Warner Slocum, a distinguished Union general, and had been in operation for 13 years. However, a series of mishaps in the years since her commission might have given her passengers pause, had they known about them. Just four months after her initial launch in 1891, she ran aground. She was okay, but three years later did the same thing, this time with thousands of passengers on board. And just a month after that, a terrible storm ran she and her passengers aground again near Coney Island. And then, later that year, she collided with another ship. In 1898, she'd have another collision. In 1902, she would run aground one more time, stranding her hundreds of passengers overnight until help could come in the morning. How was it, then, given this track record, that the Slocum was the prize ship in the harbor? Oh, 
During this time, boat accidents were relatively common. And since so few had been hurt in her incidents over the years, she continued to paddle on. This was all part and parcel of the paddleboat experience, or so riders thought. Her captain, William Von Shake, was an experienced mariner who knew the New York waterways well. Of note on this sunny June morning was an infamously turbulent spot in the river known as the Hellgate. It had sunk hundreds of ships over the years, but he knew he had the dexterity and wherewithal to ferry his passengers through safely. But as he would soon realize, this wouldn't be his chief concern of the day. To his horror, any concern about the Hellgate was about to be overshadowed by something far more sinister. About 30 minutes into their voyage, the first guests noticed that something was terribly wrong. A group of children alerted their parents that a small fire had started in a room just below the main deck. A crewman, trying to think quickly, decided that the best way to put it out would be to both stomp it and throw handfuls of charcoal atop the fire to smother it. This, of course, only fed the flames. Then, a scream. And soon, word was spreading even faster than the flames, and a general panic erupted across the decks. The crew on board, relatively untrained on what to do in the event of a fire, panicked. The smoke began to billow near the bow of the boat. The passengers rushed to the lifeboats and jackets, only to find that they couldn't be untied. The jackets were old and moldering, their job function long expired. Amidst the yells and footsteps stampeding around the decks, families called for their loved ones. So began a brutal accounting for as they gathered their flocks in preparation for what was yet to come. The ship was barely passing East 97th Street when folks on shore spotted the flames, and then the passengers started tumbling. The people on land watched in horror as passengers began jumping overboard, and due to the heavy clothes of the day, and many of them lacking swimming experience, they were bobbing, screaming, and grappling in the current that was working hard to pull them under and away. People at the docks began screaming to the captain, begging him to turn the boat inward and head to shore. The distance was short enough that he possibly could have made it. Captain Von Shake made a different decision, though, to take his chances and gun the slocum further up the river. He feared that turning her quickly at an angle perpendicular to the current would break her steering mechanism. He set his sights on the docks at East 134th Street. But before he could get the slocum there, he was waved off by a tugboat captain who feared that the flames would endanger the shipyard. So Captain Von Shake continued on for another mile, hoping to ground the ship on North Brother Island. This calculation ultimately fed the flames. Because fire needs oxygen, the ship's speed and the day's wind only encouraged the blaze, which was quickly turning the paddleboat into a floating inferno. Mothers tossed their children into the waves and followed in after them. Some held each other on their way down. The remaining passengers huddled together in the hopes that they could safely reach land if they held out long enough. In time, the middle deck collapsed, plunging everyone gathered there down into the fire. It's said that in all of this, a woman gave birth. Wanting to save herself and her newborn baby, she pitched herself and the infant into the churning waters below, never to surface alive. 
The doctors and patients of North Brother Island expected their day to come and go with the same sense of isolation as any other. It was a place where the sick were sent to quarantine, stashed away from the general populace of New York City. You can imagine their surprise, then, when they found themselves with an unexpected visitor. Captain Von Shake had grounded the burning Slocum 25 feet from shore. Nurses ran to intercept the boat and her passengers. They dove into the waves, pulling whoever languished there to safety, but they couldn't board the Slocum herself, for the heat was blistering and unbearable. Mary McCann, a 17-year-old Irish immigrant, was recovering at the hospital, just shy of receiving her clean bill of health. Like everyone else on the island, she responded to the emergency whistle and found herself running towards the fire. She threw off her shawl and braced herself for the cold water. She was able to pull a baby from the waves and six more children before collapsing herself. Tugboats followed in the Slocum's wake, pulling survivors and dead alike from the waters. The beach was soon strewn with over 150 bodies, laid out peacefully side by side. The rescuers watched as the Slocum finally fully submerged around noon, only two hours since its journey had begun. Bodies washed ashore for days following the disaster. They appeared down the length of the river, accounting for some of the 1,021 lives that were lost in the Slocum's wake. The city watched in horror as thousands of people rushed to the East 23rd Street Pier, which was deputized as a temporary morgue. Open coffins left the bodies on full display. Some of those who had died were readily identifiable, some were completely bloated, and some charred beyond recognition. Men left factories, shops, and docks in droves to find out if their mothers, sisters, wives, and children had survived. Those who couldn't be identified were buried together in a mass grave. In the days after the disaster, Klein-Deutschland was a veritable ghost town, save for the constant parade of funeral carriages and processions. It said that the church bells rang almost constantly. Over 600 families lost at least one person. For other survivors, their entire families were gone. I say survivors, but for those who were left behind, there was so little life left. The rest of the city was in an uproar. Everyone wanted to know how this happened and who to blame. There were two targets to aim their vitriol at the Knickerbocker Company, the outfit that owned the ship, and Captain Von Shake, who was left physically disabled and blind from the tragedy, having barely escaped. It was said that he was the last person to abandon ship. A formal coroner's inquest began on June 20th of 1904 and featured eight days of testimony from surviving passengers, crew members, rescuers, and the captain. And while it's true that Von Shake was responsible for piloting the ship, it was the Knickerbocker Company that was responsible for its upkeep and repairs. They were quick to point fingers back at the captain, submitting some very suspicious-looking repair receipts to the court. Rumors of corruption and bribery in the ranks swirled, feeding the public's frenzy and outcry for justice. And captain Von Shake and the company were both found guilty of manslaughter, but only Von Shake was brought to trial. It took 17 days, and Von Shake was found guilty once again. He went on to serve three years of his 10-year sentence, and was later pardoned by President William Taft. 
Meanwhile, the steamboat industry drastically overhauled the necessary safety and inspection regulations. There would be no happy ending for Kleindeutschland. The community never recovered. It saw a mass exodus and a spate of suicides in those who remained. Two years later, a small child stood in Tompkins Square Park, surrounded by her remaining friends and family. She had been aboard the boat that summer's day and was chosen as the person to tug the draping off the new General Slocum Memorial Fountain. It was a small gesture that sought to recognize an incalculable tragedy. The fabric of the Kleindeutschland community had burned up in the fire. Perhaps this child couldn't remember it, but she would go on to hear stories of that fateful day. There was no way to reconcile what had happened to her family and friends, but there was hope that she would be able to carry on without many of them. After all, she had no other choice. New York City continued to be haunted by the General Slocum, not just because of what had happened, but because of what still floated in their harbor. There floated the General Slocum's sister ship, the Grand Republic, which was nearly identical. It was very common to have a fleet of identical ships, and the Knickerbocker Company did just that. You can imagine the jolt New Yorkers felt when they saw her placidly paddling along, a striking reminder of what and who was still lost beneath the waters. The Grand Republic was intensely scrutinized in the wake of the disaster. Even still, the boat operated as planned, or at least tried to. It's said that a week after the Slocum sank, only a fourth of the Grand Republic's passengers showed up to make good on their weekend plans. It was yet another church outing. Wanting to cut their losses, the Knickerbocker Company decided to sell the Grand Republic. And just four days after the sale, the boat crashed into another off the coast of Coney Island. 500 passengers were aboard the ship, and while there were no fatalities, they were dismayed to find similarly rotting life preservers. Eventually, the boat was surrendered for government inspection. Her capacity was lowered, and her owners began losing even more money. More accidents would follow, though thankfully none resulted in death. Even still, it seemed that riding the paddle boats was a risky business, though one that passengers still deemed necessary for their day-to-day -day lives. After several years of largely quiet and uninterrupted service, the Grand Republic went down the same way her sister ship had. She was taken by fire. On April 26th of 1924, a fire broke out late into the night while she was docked. Thirty men were asleep on board, but all awoke in time to flee. She sank into the Hudson River that night, and despite the association with the General Slocum and the accidents, she went to her own watery grave with some dignity still intact. The New York Times stated, Certainly, the Grand Republic was a grand success as an excursion boat. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. On September 11th of 2001, all of New York City shut down. In the city that day, two planes careened across the skies and into infamy. Lives ended, and the world changed. For those on the ground that day, there was no way to get into the city, and there were very few ways out. The subways stopped, the bridges closed, but the water was open. Greg Freitas was a charterboat captain in New York for the summer. And on that bluebird morning, after a very late night, he ambled over to his local coffee shop. As he strolled in, he took a look at the television and saw that he had missed something extraordinary. On the news was a replay of a plane crashing into the World Trade Center. Like many people that day, he stood stunned. What was he seeing? How could this be happening? Surely an accident. Of course, that's what many thought, until the second plane hit. We know how this story goes. But then Greg, like many New Yorkers that day, did what he had to do. He jumped into action. He didn't know exactly what was needed from him, but he was going to do what he knew how. He headed back to his boatyard. He was one of the many boat captains who appeared that morning, armed with a fierce loyalty for their home and a lot of gumption. In what seemed like no time at all, they were met by thousands of people who had migrated to the waterline, trying to flee Lower Manhattan's smoke and smolder. And some were old, some were young, some were bleeding, some held their pets, and the ash rained down. They stood shoulder to shoulder on the shoreline. They wanted off. The boatmen had the benefit of having keys and knowing how to drive. By mid-morning, the Coast Guard made the official call. They asked that all boats and all captains available help with an immediate evacuation effort. 
and soon a veritable army of 130 watercraft appeared on the horizon of Lower Manhattan, ready to help. There were troops of ferries and tugboats, fishing boats and multi-million dollar pleasure yachts, sightseeing ships and emergency service vehicles. The Staten Island Ferry alone took more than 50,000 people across the river. They docked to waiting ambulances from Ellis Island to Brooklyn to New Jersey, letting folks disembark while loading up on supplies to bring back to emergency efforts in Manhattan. At one point, among an order for water bottles, oxygen, and food, there was a request for 20,000 body bags. On that day, and in the ones that followed, Greg and his compatriots pulled off the largest water evacuation in history. It's since been dubbed the 9-11 Boat Lift. That day, nearly half a million people were ferried to safety. What was also remarkable about the effort, which was nothing short of heroic, is that not only did they do this without a plan, they did it amidst utter and complete chaos. It was their gift to the city, this Herculean effort that's sometimes been overlooked in the telling of the 9-11 story. But without a doubt, those who remember pulling away from the shoreline that day, knowing that their lives would never be the same, they were thankful to those boat captains and the waters that ferried them to safety. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.